From FX on Hulu comes Mrs. America, the highly anticipated drama that explores the dawn of the 1970s women's rights movement. Tune in as we explore the story of the Equal Rights Amendment's ratification and the unexpected backlash led by Phyllis Schlafly that forever shifted the political landscape. Starring an award-winning cast, including Kate Blanchett, Sarah Paulson, Uzo Aduba, and Elizabeth Banks. Mrs. America. New episodes Wednesdays, exclusively on FX on Hulu. Visit Hulu.com for more. You said a handful of staffers have tested positive. Are they going to get the hydroxychloroquine treatment? Is that going to be made available to personnel overseas? I don't know the answer to that. Secretary Mike Pompeo on whether the State Department will practice what the president preaches. Good morning and welcome to Morning Joe. It is Thursday, April 9th. With Joe, Willie and me, we have White House reporter for the Associated Press, Jonathan Lemire, and NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent and host of KCDC on MSNBC on Sunday nights, Casey Hunt. The U.S. suffered another record day of deaths from coronavirus yesterday, more than 1,900 lives as the total number of deaths now closes in on 15,000. The nation's epicenter, New York State, also recorded its highest number of deaths in a single day, 779. And at 151,000 confirmed cases, New York State alone now has more cases than any other country, except, of course, the United States. There is, however, a glimmer of hope. The number of hospitalizations in the state continues to decline. Governor Andrew Cuomo says it's a sign that the social distancing measures are working. We are flattening the curve by what we are doing. If we stop what we are doing, you will see that curve change. That curve is purely a function of what we do day in and day out. It's not a time to get complacent. It's not a time to do anything different than we we have been doing. We know now for sure that the mitigation that we have been doing is having a positive effect, but you don't see it until weeks later. Remember this past weekend when we all of us got up in front of this podium and mentioned that this was going to be a really bad week. At the same time, we were saying that we would hope we would start to see a little bit of a change in the daily hospitalizations, intensive care, and intubations. We need to keep mitigating. We know that this is something that is a strain on the American public, but it's just something that we have, not only the only tool, it's the best tool. If you you go back and listen to Dr. Fauci really throughout the entire process, he's been predicting what was going to happen. He predicted this was going to be a bad week, bad couple of weeks possibly, but we might possibly start bending the curve. Still, I just, if we could put up that chart again that shows 431,000 cases in the United States right now. Of course, you talk to any healthcare providers from the beginning of this crisis, they certainly have been telling me and other people offline, you cannot usually multiply whatever yeah. numbers you see by seven, eight, nine, yeah. even uh, ten, tenfold. So if we're, we have 431,000 cases in America, actually 
uh, we're, I think, every scientist, every medical expert that's been studying this uh, we will tell you that we're over a million cases easily, probably in the two, three, four million case range. That said, you can't look at those numbers. You can't look at the deaths. You can't look at where we are and not go back to Donald Trump saying that, you know, back in January, that uh, January 22nd, though, we only have one case from China and we've taken care of it or that it's under control or later saying there are 11 cases or even in the end of February saying, oh, we have 15 cases. Soon it'll be down to zero. Uh, I, I, I don't think a, a federal government, I don't think a White House has ever been as wrong mm. as this president and this White House has been. Well, it's not really fair to say this White House because we have found out over the past week that whether it was Peter Navarro or whether it was Deputy NSA Pottinger, there were other people who were warnings offering came from all harsh warnings. The CDC actually started uh, getting information together last year on December 31st. Mm-hmm. And but here we are. And yesterday, of course, the absolute worst day when it came to deaths. But some signs, as Dr. Fauci said, some signs of hope that at least this first wave, we may be flattening the curve in this first wave. Yeah, and you can add in the intelligence agencies of this country, which warned the White House and warned public officials that this was happening in China and it was coming to the United States. Of course, those warnings largely ignored by the White House, unfortunately. And the good news that we hear from Dr. Fauci is that that national death toll number he believes will be lower than they initially expected. Remember when they came out, he and Dr. Burks and said it could be between 100,000 and 240,000 Americans dead from coronavirus. It kind of stopped us all in our tracks. But he says, because of social distancing, because now we're doing the things that we should have been doing earlier, that number could be lower. Same thing you're seeing in New York City, where the number of hospitalizations is down. The death number is, again, staggering, 779 just yesterday. But if, the governor says, we continue on this path, of course, the danger is people see those numbers and they see hospitalizations are down, it's getting better. If they stop behaving the way we've been behaving for the last couple of weeks, which is responsibly and distancing socially, that it does work. That's the bottom line. Any doctor you ask says this does work. And Jonathan Lemire, we talked a little bit yesterday about places the president has looked to assign blame. Governors, they should have been ready with their own ventilators. The World Health Organization now, he has a sense that this is bad and worse than he said it was going to be. And he's looking for people to blame. That's right, Willie. And it's a deliberate strategy. We see this from this president, that it's accepting no responsibility and giving no inch. Uh, And we saw it's a playbook he's used before, most notably, of course, with around the events that led to his impeachment, where the phone call with the Ukrainian leader in which he pressured that foreign government to investigate a political rival, Joe Biden, a call that even made other Republicans queasy at the time. The president, of course, referred to it totally and always as a perfect call. And we're seeing the same thing here. And we wrote on this, I wrote on this for today, he has cycled furiously through scapegoats, places to assign blame. Democratic governors, most notably, but also, of course, after biting his tongue for quite some time about China because he didn't want to offend uh, Xi Jinping as they try to hammer out a trade deal, he moved and 
turned his broadsides towards Beijing, accused them of holding back information. He's accused the Obama administration of not uh, keeping the cupboard full, as he put it, uh, which, of course, was not factually correct. We have seen him attack Joe Biden for being part of that effort. And then the last couple of days, of course, we saw him go after the World Health Organization. And it's a deliberate strategy, not just from the White House, but from Trump allies. These are talking points that have been fanned out to uh, the RNC, to influential Republicans, to uh, allies on the Hill, and, of course, to uh, some members of the conservative media have happily picked that up. We also now have a White House <laughs> that is restaffed. Uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows yeah. uh, has has moved in. He has changed the communications division. And on a quick note, the new press secretary, Kaylee uh, McEnany, I yesterday said that she was a Fox News contributor. It turns out she was just simply a Fox News, frequent Fox News guest. And I wanted to get that right for the record. Oh. But th we're oh. seeing an onslaught yeah. here from this president. It all spins. Yeah. It all stems from the podium. Uh, and this this is where he has turned the James S. Brady briefing room into a rally stage. He could be in Ohio, it could be Ohio, right. it could be like he's in Pennsylvania, right. it could be like he's in North Carolina, it, where he is spinning, yep. he's not trading with facts, he's sparring with reporters, and he's disseminating untruths. But you see, the thing is, it's not working. I mean, you can look at any series of polls that have come out, and those briefings are actually hurting him because when people go to a Trump rally, they make that decision themselves and they understand he's not going to be telling the truth. They understand they're going in to to uh, an arena and they're going to be having their own special little thing where he plays the greatest hits. They cheer. They say, make America great again. And everybody goes home happy here. He's speaking to a general audience. He's lying. He's revealing himself every day to be incompetent. He's got too many quotes. He's got too many actions. He's got too many things, Mika, that he's done over the past two or three months that reveal him. And I was just laughing when Jonathan talked about his, his lackeys in, in the media who online who were trying to defend him. There's nothing to defend. You, yeah. you, 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 there's just nothing to defend. There are too many quotes. There, there are too many lies. There are too many obvious mistruths. I said it a long time ago, uh, like the, the pandemic doesn't understand the art of the deal. You can't BS a pandemic. You can't negotiate with a pandemic. You can't bully a pandemic. You can't sort of skirt the edges of the truth with a pandemic. It is what it is. And it ain't what it ain't. Well, and it is not. It is not susceptible to spinning from either Donald yeah. Trump or his legions of lackeys. You can't negotiate and you can't spin death. You just can't do it. New signs from the West Coast give hope that new infections may be leveling off. Several states announced this week that they are sending ventilators to New York since their need is now less urgent. A little over 1,000 ventilators will be dispatched from California, Oregon, and Washington state. And according to several reports, a field hospital in Seattle is being dismantled and will soon be returned to FEMA so it can be deployed to another state with more significant coronavirus needs. 
Washington was one of the earliest and hardest hit states by the pandemic, seeing over 9,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases and nearly 400 deaths. So, um, Willie, we're going to be talking about how these expert projections are going to go down. But about a week ago, I tweeted out looking at the death rate in California, looking at the infection rate in California, specifically San Francisco, because from the beginning, I thought New York and San Francisco were going to be the hardest hit. I think I think most people believed that. But the numbers just weren't coming out of California. So I said, wait, are we going to really get to 240,000 or even 100,000 cases? And one of the reasons I, I, I questioned that was because of what an incredible job uh, the governor of California has done from the very beginning, the mayor of San Francisco, uh, Governor Jay Inslee, they all acted quickly. Mm-hmm. And and so that's why I think in a large part, one of the reasons if we don't get to 100,000 to 240,000 by August. And again, I must say this in the first wave, mm-hmm. because the pandemic of two uh, of 1918 had uh, two waves, but in the first wave, in large part, it's because of the great leadership of those West Coast governors and mm-hmm. West Coast mayors. Mm-hmm. I was texting with an emergency room doctor from Seattle just last night. It's funny you mentioned that. And he said, our leaders are to be applauded. This is not a political actor. He has no political skin in the game. He's literally just running in and out of the ER every day. Because remember, Washington State, it's easy to forget now, was sort of the canary in the coal mine for the United States. When that one nursing home in Kirkland, Washington, when 37 people died, we said, wait a minute, what's going on with coronavirus? And from that moment forward, Washington state took this very seriously. And they now, as you pointed out, are shipping their ventilators to other states. They're taking down a field hospital, much the way that New York is building a field hospital in Central Park. Seattle had built one near the football and baseball complex where the Seahawks and the Mariners play. They're taking it down now because they don't think they're going to need it. And that was because they took those early steps. One thing to look at, though, Joe, is today we're going to see this jobless number again. Every Thursday, we've been getting this jaw-dropping number. It's going to be worse than last week. Remember, we saw 10 million over the last two weeks unemployment claims. This week is going to be worse. Now, why do I bring that up? Because, as Jonathan Lemire and others have pointed out, the president is entertaining the idea of opening up portions of the economy again. What that means exactly, we don't know yet, but we know he wants to do that. If he sees another massive unemployment number, which he's going to see, there's going to be increased pressure from people around him to say, hey, we've got to get the economy started again. We're cratering here. He may feel that pressure. And that's the danger if he decides that he does want to open up parts of the economy, then we could see this outbreak all over again. Yeah, you know, Willie, they have to be so careful. And, and you're, you were talking about Seattle. We could talk again about Jay Inslee in Washington state. We could talk about Gavin Newsom taking early steps. Um, but you read the New York Times today and read about these genome studies that have been done uh, by, by uh, hospitals in, in New York City. And they once again indicate the importance of moving early, of acting early, because mm-hmm. most of the cases in New York or an awful lot of the cases these studies are showing came from Europe and didn't come from China. And you had the deputy national right. security advisor, Pottinger, uh, begging the administration in late January 
to cut off travel coming in from Europe. But Steve Mnuchin and Donald Trump, as we learned out in the Washington Post article this past weekend, refused to do that. And they refused to do that because they thought it would hurt the economy and it would hurt the stock market. Well, those now we know those were an extra two, three. I think it I think it might have been a month. I've got to check the exact dates. But uh, but because they didn't listen to the national security, a deputy national security advisor and continued having the flights coming in from Italy and the rest of Europe, you know, uh, so much of what New York's dealing with now has to do with those European travelers. Yeah, that was an interesting bit of research that was in the New York Times because we think so much about China, but a lot of this came from Europe. You're right about that. And the, the good news is, as doctors and public health officials will tell you, is there's still time for these parts of the country who haven't been hit if they adhere to social distancing and all these things that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks told us yesterday are working and will bring down the death toll in this country. But you need the president to lead from the top on that and say, hey, this is working. We're going to continue this for a while. I know it's painful, but in the long run, it will be better than the alternative. Um, Jonathan, I'd ask you uh, what kind of pressure the president is feeling about opening the economy. We know that's his instinct. He said that he wanted to have it open by Easter, backed off of that. Who around him is saying, hey, Mr. President, this jobs number today is going to be bad. It's time to get this economy cranked up again, because I know he feels that pressure and he probably feels it in his own gut. No question. In fact, I think it's been almost underreported how close he was to reopening the economy at that Easter target date. He's played it down since. He's claimed it was more an aspirational date. Uh, but he had really fallen for the symbolism of an American economic rebirth on Easter Sunday, which is this, of course, this coming Sunday, uh, and wanted to pull the trigger on it until he was talked out of it after being shown in a dramatic Oval Office meeting by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Birch as they spread maps across the Resolute desk, uh, saying just how bad the death toll could be if the, uh, and that's even with the social distancing uh, guidelines in place for most of the country. So this is something that's still with a, a significant debate within the within the West Wing. The president is pushing for a reopening of the economy, in part because connected to what we talked a few minutes ago, his efforts to spin this, his efforts to deflect blame have not worked. The Trump playbook of yeah. shifting, of denying and deflecting and blaming others has not played out. And it's being reflected in the polls. So there's a push here to change things. They're all, obviously, they have one eye towards November, towards re-election. And if the economy continues to falter and they're watching these numbers carefully, there is right. going to be renewed push from the president to try to push forward. And we're already, as I will say as a final point, seeing some chatter in the conservative media that May 1st, May 1st should be the day when most of the nation goes back to work, even though a lot of the health experts have suggested that is still far yeah. too soon. Well, of course, yeah. uh, where you want to get your information is from the pro-Trump media, <laughs> uh, because they've been so <laughs> deadly accurate from the beginning uh. of this process. So why listen to medical advisors, please, please? Get your health advice from the tr pro-Trump media um, and, and watch another 200,000 Americans die. No, that's, we, we don't listen to the pro-Trump media because they listen to his lies. Oh. They recirculate his lies. 
and the consequences are tragic. Mika, I, I was just checking the numbers on the European travel. So the, 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 yeah, two, the, the two studies that, that, that have been made by Mount Sinai and the NYU School of Medicine, and they had remarkably similar conclusions mm-hmm. that when the coronavirus started circulating around in February, most of the genomes uh, point back to Europe and not China. And that's, this is why that's important for future leaders to understand the importance in pandemics or epidemics of moving quickly. Uh, at the end of January, uh, as I said, Deputy National Security Advisor Pottinger uh, asked uh, that all European travel be closed down end of January. Uh, Donald Trump wasted a month, actually up to, 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 to five, six weeks, and actually, because he was worried about the stock market, mm-hmm. kept, kept open travel from Italy, travel from Europe uh, until March the 11th. That's yeah. when the European ban finally came into play. So during all that time, yeah. uh, you know, we, we've been asking all along, wait, wh- why was New York disproportionately hit? Again, we thought San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, which had more commercial ties uh, with China, let's say, than the East Coast, you yeah. think, because of travel. Um, but it was actually Europe uh, that, that, that hit hardest, according to these two new studies that are out. And it hit hardest when it started circulating in mid-February, uh, in large part, probably because, once again, the advice of somebody on the, uh, in, inside the White House in January, mm-hmm. was ignored. So, you know, Jonathan Lemire has been writing about the blame game and how this president is constantly, every day, trying to shift the blame on the WHO or this or that or, or the liberal media. But there's some basic problems this time in terms of this scandal versus all other Trump scandals. Number one, if your child or your spouse or your parent is ill, Doctors become your lifeline for information. Nobody else matters. You want so much for that person to get better. And this, this scandal, this, this botched prep for this pandemic, this one has called for all Americans' participation. Everybody's life has been uprooted. Children are not in school. People can't leave their homes. It is called for our participation. And in some respects, some of the numbers are going down because of what Americans have done for themselves. And so, unlike any other Trump scandal, because everybody is so invested in this and everybody is so involved, you know, making the moves to stop the spread, people are compelled to read about it. People are compelled to talk to their doctors. People are compelled to understand what happened here. And when they look at the facts, the facts are not good for the way this White House did not prepare and really, truly just Trump and maybe his son-in-law and a few other Trump inner circle members, there were people desperately trying to tell this president that this was coming. And it is clear when you look at the facts and when you look at what Americans are doing to save themselves, why didn't they start earlier? That's what they're going to ask. That's the information that's never, ever going to be branded away by this president. Casey Hunt. Well, 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 let me just say, first of all, this isn't just a 
it's not a Trump scandal. It's a national. It's an international scandal. It's an, it, 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 it is a national tragedy. This is a national tragedy. It's a and again, we, we have to be more careful in our language and stop talking about the White House uh, and right. blaming the entire White House. You're because right. again, you had last year, you had right. HHS Secretary Azar saying what kept him up at night was the fear of a pandemic, trying to get a through coming the Trump. pandemic. You, you, you had the CDC on December 31st of last year starting to assemble information about this growing crisis coming out of China. You had Azar, the HHS secretary, on January the 3rd, uh, getting the information about it. You had actually the intel agency starting to warn the president in his daily presidential briefings in, in, in early yeah. January uh, about the coming crisis. Uh, and, and you could go through the month of January uh, and, and look, on the 18th of January, you had the HHS secretary finally what? be allowed to talk to the president about the, pa the, the, the coming pandemic. Mm. And the president actually, who didn't like Azar, and so he, Azar had trouble getting through to him, instead of listening about the possibility of this coming pandemic, he instead was upset with Azar and wanted to know when flavored vaping uh, materials would be available again in the public. And then you go uh, beyond that about a week later, that's when we got the really harsh warning, uh, about 10 days later, really harsh warning from Navarro talking about how 500,000 Americans could die yeah. and that the White House was ill-prepared and ill-suited for this crisis and they better get moving. But the president was still saying, nothing to see here. Only one person, only 11 people, even late into February, only 15 people with this disease. It'll all magically go away in April. And then of so late, of late, the president, uh, you know, having a, a ship captain removed for trying to save his sailors. There are 200 sailors with coronavirus on the USS Roosevelt right now. And he has the person removed. He well, erupts when reporters ask him about this timeline. It's well, it's hard to watch because is, it's it's like the emperor's clothes just fall off the, every day during his briefing. The ship captain, of course, again, Donald Trump was able to shift blame. And so the assistant secretary of Navy was relieved, uh, resigned, it's a mess. which should ha should have been. So there, there are all of these issues circulating around Casey Hunt. Again, so many of them, if the president would just put his head down and do his job and Stop trying to turn medical press briefings into political rallies. Uh, stop worrying about his ratings and start worrying about how many Americans are dying every day. Then this would all be taken care of during the election. But he just can't do it. And now uh, we get a clearer focus of what that election, what the fall showed, political showdown is going to be, because Bernie Sanders yesterday decided to, to get out of the race. Uh, and it, it certainly makes Joe Biden the presumptive Democratic nominee. Uh, sure. tell, tell us how that came about and what yeah. we should expect. Sure. So, I mean, this I think the pandemic is driving a lot of this. I mean, Bernie Sanders acknowledged when he talked to supporters yesterday that, you know, this is a desperate moment for our country. And this is the time 
where Democrats do all need to be on the same page. I think they've got some work to do to get there onto the same page. I mean, this this was really out of character, I actually think, for Bernie Sanders. And it speaks to the gravity of the situation that we've just been spending the last half an hour discussing. I think that's what's what's really driving this here, because he is an incredibly stubborn uh, politician who did not get out last time. I think he has a good relationship, a better relationship with Joe Biden than he did with Hillary Clinton that could also help them going forward. But, you know, Joe Biden still has a long way to go. There's a lot of challenges associated with running a campaign in this pandemic. But, you know, I was talking a couple of days ago to a really smart uh, Republican who pointed out to me that the, the president's going to be judged at the end of the day on how this comes out, not necessarily how it started. How it started is going to be a huge part of that, but only because it's driving the end result. And that means that the president's decisions day in and day out about whether to open the economy, for example, still stand to be the most important and critical decisions that he is making in the context of whether he is going to win re-election. And I think one of the things that swayed the, the president, and it was in that Washington Post story that you mentioned, Joe, uh, and I read through the memo from the Republican pollster, and it literally said that people were believing what this president was saying about the coronavirus to the point that the president supporters were not taking steps to protect themselves and that for the president's for the president's base denial was actually not going to be a strategy for survival it was that mm. intense and i think that's the debate that this president is going to continue to have to have because if you listen to doctors burks and fauci we're not on the other side yet we're not at the point where we can no. open the economy and the president is really putting the lives of his own supporters more than anyone else in the country on the line if he makes the wrong decisions here well, and that's exactly what GOP pollster Neil uh, Newhouse said. He actually said that he said it a little more subtly than this. But the president's lies, the president's presentation of alternative facts, uh, this GOP pollster who's been around for a long time, yeah. widely respected in the Republican Party and certainly on Capitol Hill. But he said that uh, Trump supporters uh, if they believed what the president was saying, were actually putting themselves and their loved ones' health and lives literally in danger. And that was a feeling, by the way, across Capitol Hill with Republican members of the House and the Senate as well. Uh, Neil Newhouse's memo uh, to the Republicans certainly, I think, had an impact. But they, a lot of them were already there, Mika. They understood this was a pandemic. They understood that what the president was saying was disconnected from reality. And I think like a lot of Americans, they were listening instead to what Dr. Fauci and what Dr. Burks were saying. Well, and, and what the top scientists are saying, and it's being echoed by other scientists whose life it is to understand the facts here, is that we're 18 months away, potentially 18 months away from having a robust way of containing the virus uh, with a vaccine and antibody testing that could move up, but it's not May 1st. 
Still ahead on Morning Joe, from two of the hardest hit states, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New, Jer New York and New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy joined the conversation. Plus, our interview with Lady Gaga on the new star-studded benefit to fight the pandemic. But first, the lockdown has been lifted in Wuhan, the original epicenter of the coronavirus crisis. We'll talk to an American journalist in China on what's being done to prevent another wave of cases. You're watching Morning Joe. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. It's Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the new podcast, Into America. In our latest episode, we go to Nashville, Seattle, and all over the Internet to see just how creative some people are getting to keep the music going. What happens when gigs are canceled, clubs are closed, and school concerts are called off? When people listen to music, they're feeling the emotions and the closeness of somebody else, even if they can't be in the same space as them. Coronavirus is keeping us home, but as you'll hear, it can't stop the music. The importance of music is to keep our spirits up. We're in this situation and, in my opinion, may as well make the best of it. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. 10 Downing Street says British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is, quote, improving after spending a third night in intensive care for coronavirus complications. The country's foreign minister said Johnson is now sitting up in bed and, quote, engaging positively with the team at London's St. Thomas's Hospital. Meanwhile, China lifted its lockdown of Wuhan, as we told you yesterday, the city of 11 million, where the coronavirus first emerged. But after a 76-day quarantine of that city, there are concerns of a resurgence in infections as thousands leave that city. China yesterday announced new measures to contain asymptomatic carriers of the virus. Hospitals must report these patients within two hours of discovering a case, and local authorities must identify all known contacts within 24 hours. These asymptomatic carriers will be quarantined together then for 14 days, as will their close contacts be quarantined. According to local media, around 65,000 people have left Wuhan on trains and planes within hours of that lockdown ending. Joining us now, anchor for China Global Television Network, Jonathan Betts. He is based inside Beijing. Jonathan, good morning. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, what can you tell us about the impact of that lockdown being lifted? The place, of course, where the World Health Organization on December 31st of last year first learned that there was an outbreak of coronavirus. Yeah. It is good news, I got to tell you, here in China. We are slowly seeing things return to normal. It's a bit of good news after a very long, hard drive for a lot of people here in China. But I also have to emphasize that things are definitely not back to normal. Here in Beijing, a lot of restrictions do remain in place. A lot of bars are still closed, gyms, movie theaters, many restaurants, the places that have reopened. There are still a lot of rules in place, uh, like social distancing guidelines that are enforced. We have to wear masks everywhere, temperature checks everywhere. And to this day, uh, you know, I cannot travel freely around the country. We can roam around Beijing, but a lot of travel restrictions remain in place. So the fight is not over. It definitely continues here in China trying to contain this COVID-19. 
Jonathan, we in the United States have sort of looked to China as a, as a precursor of what may come here to the United States with stops along the way in Europe and Iran and other places like that. Um, but what what has it looked like to have this lockdown lifted? In, in other words, what were the circumstances under which the Chinese government said, OK, we can slowly begin to get back to life the way it was before this outbreak started? Basically, they're looking at the deaths and are looking at the number of locally transmitted infections. And those have pretty much dropped off. China definitely has that under control, it seems. But the big concern right now is people that are asymptomatic and people that could bring the infection from another country. So China is very concerned about that. It has moved mountains without question to try to bring this virus under control. And it's worried that some of that work might be erased if people travel into the country or even within the country and reinfect pockets of the country. So that is a huge concern right now. And they are really tightening the restrictions when it comes to travel to try to make sure that people who do test positive are put into quarantine, even those who are not testing positive, just anybody that arrives into Beijing, that flies into Beijing, they are put into a two-week quarantine at a government hotel. Um, and that is pretty tightly enforced. So these are, these are very, very severe restrictions. It shows you, I think, how seriously China is taking this and how badly it wants to bring that virus number down to zero. All right. Jonathan Betts with China Global Television Network, American journalist who's worked across the United States as well. Great to have you with us. We'll check back in with you as this goes on. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, Joe, obviously, as we've said a million times on this show, there's not a grain of salt big enough to take with the numbers that come out of China. When they reported a couple of days ago, no new deaths. I don't think anyone actually believed that. But you can look at the impact of their actions. So when they end the lockdown in Wuhan, for example, and you see all these people flooding out of the city, are they then taking that to other places with them? So, yes, we can look to China, but we have to be very wary of the data that comes out of China. Yeah, I got to be very wary of the data. I got to be very wary of the numbers. Can't trust any of the numbers that come out of China. But again, you're yeah. right. You, you, you can look at the macro uh, view of what's happened there, how long they were locked down, and when they start to open up the restrictions, what's happening beyond there. And Mika, it points to something that you've been talking about for a few days now, and that is when this first wave is over, actually the real challenge of leadership then comes. It's, it's one thing for a president or a governor or a mayor to say, we're shutting everything down. It's another to try to figure out after the first wave is over, and let's hope it will be over by June. Mm -hmm. uh, but after that first wave is over, then we're going to find ourselves in a position that China's in, where the first big wave is over. They flatten the curve. And now they've got to figure out how to get people back to work, how to get the economy started again, even even in, in small measures. Because right. you look at Singapore, uh, they have a, a, a second wave coming. South Korea talking about concerns about a second wave coming. China, obviously, when they open up their economy again, they will see that second wave coming. So the real challenge as we move forward over the next six months to a year to possibly a year to 18 months when we finally get that vaccine that that makes this uh, concern uh, a little less immediate. That will be amazing. The question is, how do we live 
with coronavirus day in and day out. That's where the real challenge in leadership comes in the coming six months to a year. There have been challenges along the way. And again, the president says he closed off China, he closed off Europe. Well, unfortunately, the American people can see with their eyes and their losses that it is here with 14,000 people dead so far. So if you, if you don't read and, and see that actually people still came in after his the moves he says he made, you can see yeah, that well, it is here. The problem is, uh, again, we've been talking about Europe and how the president didn't listen to his own national security advisors yeah. uh, when they uh, asked him to shut down travel from Europe at the end of January. And he didn't do it again because he was worried about the stock market. He was worried about the economy. Yeah. And that allowed a lot of people from Europe to come over. And in fact, especially a lot of New Yorkers, according to these two uh, latest studies that the New York Times reporting on today. Uh, but 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 again, though, even when he brags that he shut down China, he didn't. There were so many exceptions that 40,000 people, even after the so-called ban, it was such a toothless ban. 40,000 people still came over from China and. Uh, after that so-called ban and 430,000 uh, came over uh, from the time the, the, that the coronavirus epidemic first started uh, to now. So we haven't shut down travel. It's caused an awful lot of problems. And for those liberals that were saying that it's, uh, I don't know, whatever they were saying, he was a racist or xenophobic uh, to shut down travel. No, that's science. I know there's a debate. Dr. Fauci and others were saying, well, no, maybe we should. Maybe we shouldn't. I mean, come on. It just makes sense. If you're going to slow down the rate of infection, then you need to shut down the borders and you need to shut down travel. And those are some issues also that we have to keep thinking about as we move forward. Yeah. Coming up, it's a common factor across China, Italy and the United States. Far more men are being hospitalized for coronavirus than women. We'll talk to our chief medical correspondent about that and also some new numbers on deaths of younger Americans from the virus. Morning Joe is coming right back. Hey guys, Willie Geist here this week on the Sunday sit down podcast, music superstar Cheryl Crow. Her journey from a small town in Missouri to the top of the music world. Get the podcast now for free wherever you download yours. We're putting in very heavy testing systems. We have the best testing systems. And again, don't forget, when we look at cases, I'm looking at some, I'm not going to insult anybody. I'm not going to insult any country, but I'm looking at countries that are showing less cases than us. That's testing. We're testing more than anybody, and you, you saw exponentially more than anybody by far. And our testing's become, I think it'll end up being a big strength. In fact, the other countries, other countries that the media talked about are now calling us for what are we doing and how are we doing it so quickly and where are we getting these tests? Because our tests are really good now. They've been proven to be very accurate. Did it say? Literally, this is not like a cheap literally nobody in the world is asking that question competition, like what they're asking. And you see it from one leader after another. They're asking how the United States of America could be so far behind in testing. How did we screw it up? He attacked the World Health Organization yesterday. By the way, the World Health Organization, I think it was in early February, sent out 250,000 tests, 250,000 tests. The same time the CDC sent out 
90 tests across the country. Guess what? Didn't work. Those didn't work. And Donald Trump's administration did such a bad job with testing that by the end of February, the FDA had said to the CDC, if you were a private organization, Mm -hmm. we would shut you down. We still don't. And the FDA then the FDA then had to open up testing to private industry because the Trump administration had failed so badly. Now, the president also lies. I've also had really stupid people. And listen, here's the deal. If you're stupid, please don't admit it on Twitter. Okay, because that's I don't know if you know that or not. But you when you tweet at me or somebody else showing your stupidity, we can all see it. Well, it's in the public. And you see, so when you say that we've tested more than anybody else, how can you be putting misinformation out? Fake news media, Joe. You see, we have 320 million people in this country. And if you look at how we're doing per capita, per person, which really is what matters. Yeah. Because you really, even if you are stupid, you don't compare numbers of what California is doing with what Delaware is doing. Unless you're really stupid, and maybe you are, judging by some of the tweets that you send. But you look at per person, per patient, per capita, and we have been lagging on testing from the beginning. The administration has admitted it. The FDA has admitted it. Dr. Fauci has admitted it. It would have been nice. It, 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 it would have made a huge difference. This was a trillion dollar mistake on Donald Trump's part to not get in front of this like they did in South Korea. We both had this uh, our first patient infected from the same day. <laughs> the South Koreans moved on it quickly. Within a week, they had a test that worked. We continued bungling it while the president continued saying, in late January and February, nothing to see here. It's all magically going to go away. Dr. Burke yesterday talked about how, wait, wait, like 80%? Alex, is that right? 80% of some of these testing machines aren't even being used, aren't working. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, okay. I got two yeses from Alex, so it must be true. Um, anyway, so our testing's a mess. The president keeps lying about it, like those lies are going to make it go away. No, these are facts. These are numbers. And more importantly than that, Americans, like Mika was saying, they can see from their own personal experience that they can't get the this. test. They're living through this. They're suffering through this in Palm Beach County, where basically the president's home county, he spent so much time in Mar-a-Lago, the test rates are Absolutely horrific for one of the largest counties in the state of Florida with one of the oldest populations in the state of Florida. People still can't get tested. It's why America is stuck right now. How many stuck in their homes? Children can't go to school. There's no map. There's no way out of this without robust mass uniform testing yeah. something that hasn't happened. We, and actually, we've been saying that, and a lot of people have been so saying that for a very long time. Hey, if you want to get back to work, if you want to get back to your life, then you ought to call the White House today and talk about testing. Willie, everybody that knows anything about this has said from the beginning that if you want to get the economy started, 
You got to do robust testing. This president thinks he can get up at a press conference and lie. And that's somehow going to change the fact that we're still miserable when it comes to testing. When you talk about uh, per patient, per person, per American. Well, one indication of how bad it is, Joe, is that the governors here in the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey and Connecticut have somewhat quietly because they want to be diplomatic in dealing with the president. They need the help of the federal government are moving past him on the question of testing. Now, after a month or two, they've said, oh, we're not going to get the testing help we need from the federal government. So they're looking locally. How do we as governors of these three states very hard hit by coronavirus? How do we push testing forward so that you have governors in states and it's not just here in the tri-state area who are looking at the numbers in their own state and saying, we're not anywhere near where we need to be on testing. We have to take over this process. Again, they want to work with the federal government where they can because they need that help. But they're looking past the president on testing. Remember when Barack Obama said, if you want to keep your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And Republicans rightly called him out on that. Well, the president's big lie on testing was, I think it was March the 6th. It was early March. Where the president goes to the CDC, he's got his stupid hat on. Stupid because the president of the United States in the middle of a pandemic shouldn't be wearing a campaign hat. But he goes in there, talks about what a great medical mind he has. And then he lies and he says, if you want a test, any American that wants a test can get a test. And... And it says they're perfect tests. They're great. Well, they weren't perfect tests. They weren't great tests. And here we are uh, a month later and Americans still can't get a test. Let's bring in right now Morning Joe Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Dave Campbell. Dave, we're still having a problem with testing. At the briefing, Dr. Burke said that there still wasn't enough testing being performed because in some of the labs, the machines weren't running. What did you mean by that? Joe, we're not having a testing problem. We're having a testing abomination. It is unbelievably horrible, the lack of testing availability across the country. I'm in Palm Beach County. You can forget about it if you think you're going to drive through a drive-by urgent care center or a tent and be tested. It is not going to happen. Testing and physical distancing, those two things are connected because if you are tested and you know whether or not you have the virus in you, that will help you determine what you're going to do that day. So what I'm hearing about testing isn't registering with me because it is not available. You have to be sick in a hospital to be tested. And how many times, Casey, have we heard the story uh, that that you you don't get tested. There are people that don't get tested. They stay at home. They're not they're they're not able to get the tests until it's too late. And then they go into the hospital when they have uh, really extreme symptoms and then are finally tested. Some people actually stay at home and die and never get tested. I mean, the reality, Joe, is I think I certainly know people who are having symptoms and who can't go to the hospital to get tested or being told to stay at home or being told the tests aren't available. I have a feeling that most Americans probably know uh, people. And by the time this epidemic is over, we'll know people that have struggled with getting these tests. And the reality is until this problem is fixed, 
we're not going to be able to fix the broader problem of the economy. I mean, antibody testing is obviously an important piece of that in the long run. But when we're dealing with a potential resurge of this epidemic in the fall where we don't know where this disease is until we can know and aggressively trace every single contact of every single person who tests positive, we're not going to be able to really put this behind us. And so, I mean, this wasn't just yeah. I mean, this was an incredible failure. And, and I've thought of that, that comparison that you made with what Obama said, the if you have that plan, you can keep it. We want to talk about the campaign. Yeah. If you have a test, you can get a test and you still can't get a test in November. I mean, that is just going to underscore so intensely the failures uh, of this of our government, of this administration to deal with this on the front end. Well, it's kind of horrific to watch the stupidity when the president talks about this incredible accomplishment that no other co country has achieved with all these tests. And Americans watching or listening to him who can't get tests are thinking, what are you saying? They know they can't You're get tests. You're lying to me. This isn't so about... So it's not just us like saying it because, yeah. you know, for some reason we like facts. Americans who are worried about their lives and their children's lives and their parents' lives and trying to figure out whether or not they have the virus, they care about the facts, too. And they know when someone is lying to them. Well, you know, this, this is basic. Yeah. And this isn't like Robert Mueller. You can say what you want about Robert Mueller. Most Ukraine, Americans, whatever. They don't, they don't know about Robert Mueller. They don't know about Ukraine. They know about their children's health. They know about their parents. They health, know whether they can get a test. And they know whether they can get a test for their loved ones or for themselves or not. And they can't. Most Americans can't right now. So there's no need for the president to go out and lie. It only hurts him. Now, Another issue, the number of young yeah. Americans' uh, lives that are being lost to the coronavirus continues to rise. According to state data analyzed by the Washington Post, uh, 759 people under the age of 50 have died. Uh, and for uh, people under the age of 20, a uh, death ex is extremely rare. But, Dave, those numbers keep going up. Uh, can you can you give us some insight uh, as to why it seems that unlike in Europe and from what we heard, at least in China, but unlike in Europe and especially Italy, uh, we heard when this pandemic was coming to the United States that it was just a disease for senior citizens and not younger Americans. That's not actually how it's playing out here. What, what, any insights? Yeah, I have a few. Um, one of them is that it is indeed still decade by decade more likely to cause death and more serious illness. So the older you are, the more uh, pre-existing problems or heart or lung problems you have. That's worse. If you're obese, that's worse. Black Americans have a, a higher death rate. But what I have not heard anything about is the incidence of vaping. One in four high school students right now are vaping. And I don't know, but I will bet you that more are doing that now that they're out of school and home. Vaping creates a lung injury. It creates inflammation. Smoking does the same thing. What I would suggest is that we consider vaping and smoking as one of those chronic pre-existing conditions. If we do that and look at that data through that lens, we may find an explanation in part for why younger people are having the illness and even dying. There are some genetic issues that are at play that people are investigating to see are there different genetics in younger people. But wow. vaping is staring at us right now in the face, Joe. Yeah, and, big and, time. And what about That's men? That's so scary. Yeah, what, what, men, why do men seem uh, to, to fare worse with the coronavirus than women? Uh, 
uh, it may be there are some social factors. The smoking rates across the world are higher in men. The potential that there are some genetic difference. We know there are genetic differences, obviously, men and women. They haven't figured out why. They just know that men are more likely to die of the uh, coronavirus than women, uh, just as black Americans, uh, African-Americans and Hispanics have a tougher time with it also. All right, uh, Dr. Dave, thank you very much. Here's Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? I'll be talking with computational biologist Carl Bergstrom about what we do and don't know about the coronavirus. Once these things get out there, and this is kind of sort of a key aspect of misinformation and disinformation, is that once they're out there, they really take off and they spread. And so Jonathan Swift uh, said several hundred years ago that falsehood flies and truth comes limping after. And, and that's what happens on the internet, of course. So there's a more recent version of this, which is known as uh, Brandolini's bullshit asymmetry principle. And it says the amount of work that it takes to clean up bullshit is an order of magnitude larger than the amount of work it takes to create it. So we definitely see that sort of thing happening with all kinds of conspiracy theories, including this one around the virus. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.